I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, and that's where we're going to find our place this morning. <clears throat> the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to start in chapter 1. You know, when a baby is born, <clears throat> one of the first things that, that parents tend to do, and I'm sure you, you did this too, uh, if you have children, is we start gazing at that little baby and we start trying to figure out who they look like the most. Right? We sit there and we go, oh, he has your eyes. Oh, she's got your nose. Oh, those are my lips. Oh, look at them ears. They look just like my ears. Right? We all do that. And then what we do is we go and we get the old scrapbook out or the photo album and, and we start flipping through it and we find our baby pictures. The old ones. And, and we start comparing what the baby looks like to what the portrait in the picture looks like. We, we've all done it before and we look for similarities and, and, we're in a series called Portrait, and when God sent His Son Jesus to the earth to be born that first Christmas, the ones who received Him are not much different than we are. When they received Him, they wanted to know the answer to the question in the old familiar Christmas carol, what child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? And so... Like us, they wanted to find a comparison. And they began to compare the babe of Bethlehem to the portraits that they had in their past. The most accurate portrait that we have of Jesus, the Son of God, of what He should look like, of who He should look like. The most accurate portrait that we have is Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy paints a portrait for us of the coming Messiah. And so what we want to do today is I want to show you some of the pictures that they looked through as Jesus came on the scene. And my hope is this. My hope is that as, as we gaze with them at the portrait of Messianic prophecy, that we too will make the declaration that He is the Son of God. I said last week in the first week of this series, and I'll say it again, my goal, my hope for this season is simply this, that we would see Jesus. And so we're, we're framing Him because we want to see the Messiah. You know, a lot of people, they read, they read the Bible as if it was one continuous book. And they, they fail to realize that the Bible is actually 66 separate books, written by over 40 different authors, over some 1,500 years, people from different uh, lifestyles, from different socioeconomic statuses. You have kings, you have shepherds, uh, you have disciples, you have prophets, <coughs> you have tent makers, all different people. And like any book that's written, when an author writes a book of the Bible, they have a particular audience in mind. They have people that they're, they're trying to communicate to. And not only do they have a particular audience, but they have a purpose 
in their writing. And so as we look at Matthew, the first couple chapters, I want you to keep in mind that this is not just a part of the narrative of the story of God. This is Matthew's purposeful letter to a Jewish audience. And here's his purpose in writing the Gospel of Matthew. His purpose is to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew from that perspective, you start to see very clearly why he emphasizes so much of what the Old Testament had to say. In fact, there's 40 quotations in the Gospel of Matthew from the past. And in Matthew's account of the Christmas story, what he does in these first two chapters is he he hangs five portraits up on the wall as he tells the Christmas story. And he brings his readers past these five portraits so that they can see the greatest picture of what Jesus would look like. The portrait of Old Testament prophecy. So I want us to begin in Matthew chapter 1. Reading in verse 22 and 23. Let's take a look for a few moments this morning at Matthew's gallery. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel. Which means God with us. I want you to consider for a couple of moments, keep your place there in Matthew, because we're going to continue there, but turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll put some of these verses on the screen as well, but I want us to consider the prophetic picture for a moment that that Matthew was quoting from. It's in Isaiah chapter 7, and Isaiah's prophecy takes place 700 years before the birth of Christ. And he's writing in a day where the concern of that day is a threat against the throne of Ahaz. Ahaz was the king of Judah. And he's one of those names, if you read Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy that we kind of skipped down through last week. Ahaz is one of those names in the genealogy of Jesus. And so in Isaiah's day, he lived in the day when Ahaz ruled as king of Judah. And the issue that Ahaz was facing in that time is that there were two other kingdoms that had formed a coalition against him. Their plan was to destroy the dynasty of David, to remove Ahaz from the throne, to put their own king in its place. Now, if you understand, again, what Matthew is trying to communicate in his gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah and that the Messiah would come through the line of David, then we see in this picture in Isaiah 7 that everything is at stake here. If Ahaz is overthrown, if the line of David is cut short, then the rightful heir to the throne of David, the Messiah, cannot come as was foretold. And so, in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet comes to visit King Ahaz. He comes to give him a word of encouragement in the middle of his troubles. And and here's what he tells him in verse 4. He says, be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. 
Now, that's good advice all by itself. Maybe you just needed that. So keep calm and don't be afraid. Isaiah 7, 4. But he tells Ahaz these words in verse 6. He said, your enemy's plan is to invade Judah. They're going to tear it apart. They're going to divide it up. But here's what I want you to see. Look at Isaiah 7 and verse 7. This is what the Lord says. This is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. So Isaiah comes in with a powerful word of encouragement. Everything in the natural looks like Ahaz is about to be defeated. The enemy wants to destroy him. The enemy wants to tear down his kingdom. And the Lord speaks through Isaiah. It will not happen. Now look down with me at verse 10 through 12. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Just think about how cool this is. I mean, the Lord says to Ahaz, ask me for a sign. The enemy wants to destroy your life. It's not going to happen. And I want to prove it to you. Go ahead, ask me for a sign. You want me to do some sign in the highest heavens, something with the clouds? I'll do that. You want something down in the bottom of the ocean? I'll do that. You just ask me for a sign, and I'm going to prove to you how faithful I am. Now, that's pretty cool. And I don't advise you, you know, ask God for a sign all the time. I don't think we should live that way. God, I'll, I'll do it if you, you know, show me a rainbow. I'll, if, I see a, if I see a dolphin flip, you know, I'll... We put all these conditions on. I don't advise doing that, but this is a unique situation. This is God saying, ask me for a sign. I'm so faithful. Ask me. I will show you a sign. Look at verse 12, though. It says, but Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. I got to be honest. When I first read that, that sounds spiritual. That sounds like a good answer. I mean, I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, in fact, that was a quotation out of Deuteronomy 6. Do not test the Lord your God. Jesus even quoted Deuteronomy when he was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4. He said, do not test the Lord your God. So when we see Ahaz say this, it looks like he's being humble. It looks like he's being spiritual. But this is different. God said, I want to prove myself to you. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz, as you study the story out, he didn't have any desire to trust God to be his source. In fact, he was banking on the Assyrian army coming to his aid. And he didn't want to put his trust in God. And so he veins some false humility and he refuses to ask God. God gets frustrated. I want you to look at the next verse in Isaiah 7. Verse 13 says, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? So God was saying, look, I want to prove myself to you. And yet you refuse, you refuse the offer. You're trying my patience. Now, I don't want to stay on this point too long, but there's there's a, a glaringly obvious parallel that I have to point out to us because I think a lot of Christians do this very thing today. There's not a whole lot of situations in life where God invites us to test Him. But He does invite us to test Him in the area of the tithe and the offering. 
That's what Malachi 3 says. The Lord invites us. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Look at the next words. It says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The reality is this God wants to bless you. And in the area of your finances, he has said, test me in this. You go ahead and bring the tithe, bring the offering and see if I don't bless you. And a lot of us, I think we're trying his patience because we feign spirituality and say, oh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't test the Lord. And God was frustrated with Ahaz. And so instead of giving Ahaz a sign of his commitment to him, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and he gives him a picture of his faithfulness to his promise through the line of Ahaz. And in that moment, Isaiah speaks a word that will be fulfilled seven centuries into the future. Look at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, you don't want a sign of my faithfulness to you in this moment. Let me tell you a sign of my faithfulness to fulfill my plan. He said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And you will call him Emmanuel. So in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew pulls out this portrait from Isaiah 7. And he puts on display what God has said some 700 years before. Go with me back to Matthew because it's there in that setting that he begins. <coughs> he begins to tell us in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's in this setting that he begins to tell the supernatural story. And as we read through the familiar passages, we see that Joseph, the Bible says, wanted to put her away quietly and divorce her because that's just what you would expect a guy to do if he found out his fiance was pregnant and she said, God did it. And so the Bible says Joseph was just going to divorce her but then an angel of the Lord showed up and appeared to him and said, no, 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 she is with child and the child conceived in her womb is from the Holy Spirit. And so skipping down to verse 21, the Lord, the angel of the Lord said, she will give birth to a son and you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then the next verse, as Matthew hangs his portrait on the wall, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Look with me into the next chapter. <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 2 says that Magi had come from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who has been born, king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where is the Messiah to be born? 
Now, this next verse in the story communicates to us just how authoritative they saw Old Testament prophecy to be. In fact, apparently, Herod had some knowledge of the Word of God, at least enough to know that somewhere in the Jewish people's Bible is communicated where the Messiah is going to come from. And so when he heard from the Magi about this king who was going to be born, he called all the religious leaders. He called probably the whole Sanhedrin together. And he said, tell me, where... Does your Bible say that this king is going to be born? And look at the next verse. Verse 5 says, In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, For this is what was written by the prophets. These, these religious leaders had seen, had seen the picture. All of their lives they had seen the portrait. And, and they knew that the child of promise was going to be born... In Bethlehem. Now, I want to look at this prophetic portrait that that Matthew displays for us in verse 6. For this is what was written. It says in verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They had seen the picture so many times before. That when Herod asked the question, where's the Messiah going to be born? They said, oh, we've seen that. He's coming out of Bethlehem. Now that's a quote out of Micah in the Old Testament. And it was a well-known fact that all all the way back to the time of King David, it was a well-known fact to the people of God that the Messiah was going to come out of Bethlehem. In fact, it was so well-known that at one time in Jesus' ministry, When he was preaching, there were people that argued the validity of his claim to be the Messiah. Thank you so much. They argued his claim to be the Messiah, and their grounds for doing it was the fact that he was a Galilean. People looked at Jesus and said, he's a Galilean. And here's what they said in John chapter 7 and verse 41. It says, he is the Messiah, but still others ask, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Isn't that what the portrait of Old Testament prophecy tells us? And they were absolutely right in understanding the scriptures that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. But what those critics failed to see, what they didn't understand was that the census that they were required to be a part of every 14 years for the rest of their lives was started about 30 years previous. And the very first census that Caesar Augustus had decreed should happen all over the Roman Empire was strategically instituted by God just so that Mary and Joseph the parents of Jesus, would be required by law to leave their home in Nazareth and go to Bethlehem at the time that Jesus was to be born. So the critics are looking at Jesus, the Galilean. But the Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 3, and everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph 
also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, if you don't know the portrait that hangs in Old Testament prophecy, it's amazing how coincidental the next verse sounds. As if it just kind of kind of happened this way. And maybe you've read it before and, and you missed the significance of this, <coughs> of this moment. But verse 6 says, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. While they were there. Luke's account communicates to us how God is willing to move entire empires to uproot and shake up nations so that his will can be accomplished. He orchestrated the entire Roman Empire to go to have a census just so that while they were there, the time for the baby to be born would come. And God made it happen because 700 years before, Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Let me show you the third portrait that that Matthew puts on display. And that portrait is in the book of Hosea, chapter 11. And it's in the first verse. Hosea 11 and verse 1 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, if you've ever read Hosea, you know that's a weird book. God uses Hosea to prophesy against the unfaithfulness of his people. In fact, God uses him to perform an illustrated sermon with his own life. He's told by God to go and marry a woman named Gomer. Now, let me just tell you guys, unless God speaks to you, don't marry a woman named Gomer. But he does. And after he marries her and takes her, Gomer leaves him for another man. But not just for another man. She leaves him the next day for another man. And then for another man. And she goes into prostitution. And then God does something unfathomable. He speaks to Hosea and calls him to go down to the red light district and buy his wife back. And and his life is a testimony and an illustration of God's unrelenting, covenant-keeping love to us, that He's willing to redeem us and to purchase us back, even when we've prostituted ourselves to false gods. And Hosea (coughs) prophesies to the nation of Israel about God's faithfulness. And, And the words that he repeats throughout his story are these, I have been your God ever since you came out of Egypt. And so Hosea's prophecy points all the way back to Exodus chapter 4 when God is speaking to Moses about going and delivering the people out of bondage in Egypt. And he tells Moses, when you get to Pharaoh, (laughs) say to him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn. (coughs) But how in the world How in the world does Jesus being born in Bethlehem fulfill the prophecy 
of a son being called out of Egypt. That's what Matthew is trying to teach us in Matthew chapter 2 when he hangs this picture on the wall. Now, I want to skip over in Matthew 2 the, the part of the story that we usually focus on. And, and it's a great part of the story, but the wise men, they see the star, they come, they, they bow down in worship to the king. They lay down their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now the the wise men have come, and they've gone. And I want to pick up in verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2. It says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So, verse 14 says, he got up. He took the child and his mother during the night and he left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. How could Jesus fulfill the prophecy of being called out of Egypt when he was born in Bethlehem and his parents were from Nazareth? Because Jesus first had to escape to Egypt as a refugee from Herod. And not only does Matthew display the prophetic portrait for us, but in his wording in this verse, and also in chapter 1 and verse 22, he emphasizes who the artist is. He doesn't give credit in this moment to Hosea. Look at it again. He said, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. This is God speaking. This is God painting on the canvas of prophecy so that when the Messiah appears, you could look at that portrait and say, oh, that's definitely him. Oh, that's him. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we've been looking for. Now, when I read this story with my family on Christmas morning, as we always do, it's our tradition, I typically stop before I get to the next part of the story. It's a little gruesome for little girls. But I want us to read it this morning because there's another picture that Matthew paints for us. And this fourth (coughs) prophetic picture is a very dark moment in the Christmas story. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 through 18 says that when Herod had realized what had been done, that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Verse 17. Then, what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Well, what picture did Jeremiah paint? Look at it with me. Verse 18. Jeremiah said, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let me tell you about this picture that Jeremiah painted in the Old Testament. Ramah was a town about five miles north of Jerusalem. And it sat significantly right on the border between Israel and Judah. And the reason that that is significant is because when foreign nations would come and invade Israel or Judah, and they would take the people captive, 
As we often see in the Old Testament, Ramah was the city where they would all be gathered for deportation. And so although when Jeremiah wrote this, Rachel was already dead, Rachel was a type of the mother of both Israel and Judah through her children. And so Jeremiah writes this picture and he says, Rachel is weeping and she's crying because she sees all of the children of Israel and Judah being gathered together, put in shackles and being deported to foreign nations. She sees her children going away. They're being put in exile and she's mourning. And so Matthew hangs this portrait on the wall and he sees Herod killing all of the children in Bethlehem two years and under. Probably 15 to 30 little boys. And in that moment, Matthew says, Rachel is weeping. Rachel, the women of Bethlehem, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. And everyone there knew her tomb was in that place. And he said, Rachel is weeping, not because her children are sent into exile, but they're being executed. And he hangs this picture on the wall. Before we leave this gallery, I want us to see one more picture this morning. And I love that Matthew included this last prophetic picture in the story. Because it emphasizes the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of our setbacks and our disappointments. Because the plan for Mary and Joseph was to go to the land of Israel. But things didn't work out that way. If you look at it with me in Matthew 2 and Picking up in verse 19, it says, After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up. He took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid. To go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, prophets throughout the Bible have rejected, have been rejected because of being uneducated or because they came from a place that they would not consider a suitable background. They didn't have the the pedigree to be considered a prophet. Jesus himself, in fact, was dismissed by Jewish leaders in his ministry when they learned that he was from Nazareth. They, They figured he's just some uneducated teacher from Nazareth and It's just some insignificant town. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Nobody really knows or cares about Nazareth. In fact, there's not even a specific prophecy like all the other four that we've looked at. There's no specific prophecy that says he will be from Nazareth. But there are many scriptures that communicate that Jesus will be a humble king. That he'll be despised and rejected. That he will not be esteemed. And because Joseph and Mary had to flee so quickly out of Egypt, or to Egypt, out of Bethlehem, Jesus didn't grow up with the, the privilege of being called a Bethlehemite. 
No, Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. No prominence. Nothing special about where he came from. And think about this. Jesus spent almost five-sixths of his life living among poor people in obscurity. If there was ever a picture that communicates to us a humble king, it's the reality that Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And so with this portrait, Matthew explains that the coming Messiah has now come full circle to the man that all of his audience has read about and heard about and learned about. It's Jesus of Nazareth who's doing these miracles. It's Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified on the cross. It's Jesus of Nazareth who people have testified to his resurrection. And as you read Matthew's gospel, something becomes very clear as you read through the rest of it. His hope and his purpose, his writing to this audience was that they would see that everything that you've read, that everything you've heard about the story of God and His people all finds its significance and its final expression in the life of Jesus. So I just want to pose a question this morning that may be an obvious question that some of you are wondering, but why does that even matter to me? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't looked at the Christmas story in light of these prophetic portraits, but why should I even care about prophetic portraits of Christ in the Old Testament? And I would appeal to you this morning that it matters to you because the portraits that hang in the prophetic gallery at Christmas time only fill one hallway. The reality is, the accuracy of the prophecies about Jesus' birth ought to stir in you some confidence to believe that everything else that was prophesied about Jesus was also true. The fact is, much more was said about His second advent than what was said about His first. The prophets illustrate so much more than just Christ coming at Christmas. They talk about a lot more than just a baby being born in Bethlehem. In fact, the Bible contains hundreds of prophecies that relate to His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His future return. There's 30 scriptures that were fulfilled in a 24-hour period just before Jesus died on the cross. All these pictures point to the reality that Jesus, the one we recognize in this season, the one we are familiar with in the Christmas story, all these portraits ought to make us live in anticipation of the rest of the story. Can I remind you in a Christmas season that Jesus is coming again? And as sure as there are pictures throughout the Word of God that they could look at and know, the Bible says He'll be born in Bethlehem. They can look at the portraits and they, they can, they can know with certainty where He would come from, that He would be of the line of David. 
We also can look with certainty at the pictures that tell us that one day Jesus is coming again. Not as a babe in a manger, but he's coming as a, as a conquering king on a white horse. The Bible says he's coming and he has many crowns on his head. He has a, a scepter that he rules with in his hands. He's wearing a robe that's dipped in blood and he has a name written on his thigh. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's coming again. And as surely as there were people that saw the pictures and knew they missed him the first time. We know that there are going to be people who have read all of Matthew's gospel. They've read, he, he wrote more about the coming of the Lord than any other gospel writer. They've seen those pictures and yet still, when he comes, they won't recognize him. I want to challenge you today to, to see to see what Matthew was trying to, to help his audience see today. That the greatest picture that we have in the Bible of what Jesus looks like when he came the first time is the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the greatest picture that we have of what Jesus will look like when he comes the second time are the portraits of biblical prophecy. And I want to give you a verse in Second Peter that we can hold on to. The Bible says this about biblical prophecy. It says, we also, this is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. It's on the screen. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. It's completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Jesus is the morning star. And the Bible tells us that we have these prophecies as a reliable source. And here's what we ought to do. We ought to hold on to them. Here's what you ought to do today. You ought to take God's word. And you ought to hold on to it as, as to a light shining in the darkness. Because there's things in your future and things in my future that I don't know about. You don't know about. And there's questions that you could ask this morning that honestly I couldn't answer for you. But what I do have is a picture. I have a portrait of God's word. And he says you can hold on to that. You can hold on to that picture as to a light shining in the darkness. Until that day when the morning star rises. Until that day when Jesus makes all things clear. And he steps on to the scene of human history once again. Today, more than anything, I want you to see Jesus as you look at the Christmas story. And as you look at these portraits, know that this same king has been portrayed as coming again. And he wants to come. As surely as he wanted to come to Bethlehem, he wants to come to your heart and to your life. He wants to take up occupancy and dwell with you. As we sang about it earlier, God wants to draw near to us today. So at the conclusion of this service, I, I want to pray a prayer for you. And as I pray, I realize that, that we've got people in this room <coughs> that are very biblically literate. Maybe you've studied God's word for years and, and maybe some of you, you've never really heard the Christmas story. But I want you to know today, more than you can have confidence in anything I say, you can have confidence in this book. 
you can have confidence in God's word. The Bible says this about his word. Your word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. Peter said those prophetic words are like a light shining in the darkness. I want to challenge you today to put your faith in Jesus, to put your faith in the God who has been portrayed for us for generations. Not only has he come, but he's coming again. And if you open your heart to him today, he'll come into your life. So what does that look like? It's simple. The Bible says if we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. He'll, he'll come and he'll live in your life. You say, well, but I haven't figured everything out yet. You don't have to. That's not what faith is. Faith is simply saying, God, I, I don't have it all figured out, but I, I see that you do. I see that you do. And I'm trusting you with my future. 